Hello and welcome to episode 16 of the Frame and Sequence podcast. My name is Todd Rittendaro, and in this episode, I sit down with Matt Horanic. Matt is a man of many interests and many talents. Among other things, he's a photographer, director, and as he says, an accidental author and accidental TV host. And now he is the editor-in-chief of his own magazine, WM Brown Magazine, which just released their third issue for fall. He's also the author of the book, A Man and His Watch, and he's the former style editor of Condé Nast Traveler, among many other things. But at the core of it all, he is a storyteller, and quite a great one at that. Matt's energy and passion for the things he loves is contagious, and I was really excited to sit down with him to ask him about his days as a photographer, how he approaches storytelling, what excites him personally, some of his upcoming projects, and of course, Italy and his love of Negronis. It was a real thrill to talk to Matt, and I hope you enjoy. Hi, Matt. Thank you so much for sitting down with me. I've followed you for a long time and have taken much of your good advice when it comes to traveling in Italy and uh, where to find all the best little niche things that I also enjoy. So I'm, I'm thrilled to be sitting here talking with you. Thank you. Pleasure. Great to be here. Yeah. Just before we hit record, we started talking about sort of this new world that we're living in where, you, where, where it's now possible to create your own sort of point of view, as you said, which I think is a cool thing. The world of Instagram and social media. Yeah. I mean, I really like Instagram as a platform on many levels. I think there's this kind of immediacy of communication that I really like and also finding like-minded people and what they like is it's a kind of it's a very quick way to kind of filter through a lot of noise. For sure. Um I do think IG is a place for only good times. I I don't like negativity. I don't think it's a format that should encourage negativity and I don't know memorialization and I I just think it's it's it should be treated as it is which is a folly and it shouldn't be taken so seriously and it obviously frames a very specific point of view right sure. like it's we are we are not I'm not framing the mundane things in my life even though sometimes we talk about the extraordinary tragedies like right. pandas breaking down on road trips and stuff like that. Right. Like it is good to show a little reality like that. But I think, I don't know, I think in general, Instagram is a kind of little bit of a life celebration without sounding corny. Yeah, I would totally agree. I mean, it's certainly, I don't approach it with, with this kind of, you know, I need to show off, show you. I just think it's about a very specific part of my life that I navigate that Right. I put out there. Yeah. No, and I love following you and I love the way that you, you curate things and you have a new magazine which sort of takes all the things that you love and puts them into one place. How did that all come about? Well, I have been working in legacy magazine publishing since got for twenty five years. Right. On the photography end of things and then later on the kind of editorial content side of things and it was just the only world I really knew. And as I watched this kind of landscape changing with legacy publishers, I realized, well, there was two things. There wasn't that men's magazine that spoke to the whole version of myself, right? Right. Like I was finding food magazines and sporty kind of outdoor magazines and some style magazines, but nothing really spoke to the whole version of myself, which is a little bit of all that. Right. So I was like, well, let's just do this. Let's like put it under one roof and see if it resonates and treat it with big beautiful imagery and kind of thoughtful simple stories and not long form and I, again like i didn't want to take this thing too seriously right right i wanted it digestible and fun and you know there's enough stress that we navigate in our lives <laughs> and why i think this is a little bit of escapism and hopefully a little bit of inspiration in the process yeah it's interesting to me because i, I got the first issue in the mail and and I was like, oh my God, this is like, this is something new here, which Great. was just incredible. It had a life to it that I hadn't seen in publishing in a while. Well, it's interesting that you say it's something new because the reality is it's actually based on a very old idea. Mm. You know, when I first was navigating magazines and looking at magazines in the early days of like GQ and House and Garden and, you know, all those kind of amazing Vanity Fair, yeah. Vogue, uh, Worlds of Interior, right? Like there was a real celebration of imagery thoughtfulness and it was smart mm -hmm. even like you know I have a collection of old gourmets from the 70s they're absolutely oh, those are the best brilliant they're brilliant and, and and to be honest with you I'm a lazy reader and the words are br more are brilliant yeah. right so I really wanted to kind of recreate what I remember and enjoyed the most from those kind of periods 
And first and foremost was about a celebration of, of photography and imagery and unadulterated and just very big and straightforward. And also, because I am a lazy reader, I, I probably felt like I'm not alone out there. So let's just kind of get to the point with all this stuff. Right. Right. We live, <laughs> yeah, good idea. So in a weir- weird way, it is framed almost like the way we engage now on telephones and with social media and, and, and things like, yes, we, it's right. proven we have a shorter attention span. Yes. So why not? Pay attention to that a little bit and see like you know we live busy lives yeah. like pick it up breeze through it put it down come back to it you don't miss anything right yeah no it's it's i love it i mean again Thank i you. love each little section i love i love that you incorporated cooking too which is a huge yeah. passion of mine and and to your point about the gourmet magazines my my mom saved me a stack of like the mediterranean recipe ones that i still have and savor every now and again so there there are some i i love the idea like you know we're kind of building all this content on our own, right? Right. So we are very fortunate to have great friends who are writers and photographers who have been really donating this stuff because they they want to see it out there and they want to see it in print. But I love the idea of this excerpt, right? So there are some amazing stories in those old gourmets that I am going to desperately try to figure out a way how I could legally excerpt them. Oh, that'd be great. I mean, there are. <laughs> I love I mean, that. From you know the the kind of fable of Genghis Khan's men basically creating the steak tartar <laughs> right right you know like putting you know there's an amazing piece oh, on that I love that and there was another amazing section in the gourmets that was about kind of frugal cooking which was so kind of a, such a 70s idea right. right but when you look at those recipes they're so amazing oh yeah and you know to be honest with you I love cookbooks, mm-hmm. and I love vintage cookbooks particularly. And a lot of that stuff you find in there, there's no way I could have ever done a Google search and figured it out, right? <laughs> totally. So I think that's the value of that kind of dialogue with paper of like creating stuff that isn't just necessarily involved with a search engine. Right. Yeah, it's great. I, I love the way you curate all that stuff. I'd love to just ask you a little bit about your history of how you came up and in photography and, and what excites you about photography. Um, did you... Did you go to school for photography? Yeah, I went to school. uh, I graduated high school and went to RIT in Rochester to study photography. Uh, I was the yearbook photographer. I skipped class in high school to go in the darkroom. My dad was a graphic designer, sign painter, very serious amateur photographer. And I just, I think he sensed the fact that I couldn't draw and handed me a camera, right? (laughs) So I left... I left RIT, moved to New York, and I was an assistant. There was a big community of RIT grads there, mostly mm-hmm. in the still life world. Mm-hmm. And I just like, oh my God, this is the greatest job in the world. Like they're paying me 85 bucks a day. I get a free breakfast and lunch. I take the other stuff home. I get to <laughs> totally. be around image makers and kind of navigate what I thought was the coolest possible life in New York City at the time. And I really used photography as a springboard for... Uh, experience and, and mostly travel. So as I started assisting photographers that were on the road more, then I really felt like, wow, this is really for me. And then I started shooting. I got a portfolio together. I mean, this is old school, right? Like yeah, for sure. You had to build a portfolio. You had to pay for the leather portfolio, portfolio, and you had to physically get that portfolio once you figured out how to pay for that <laughs> in front of the right eyeballs to give you an assignment. Like it's a, it was a much more difficult landscape. So it, I, I became more scrappy in that process and, you know, I knew there was a lot, I knew there were better photographers, but I knew that there was no one better than me in terms of like getting that book in right front of the right person. Right. If I got the assignment or not, I don't know, but I, I was good at that. And so I, um, had a pretty prolific editorial and commercial career and it, it showed me the world and provided me. Uh, and income and you know and then the digital landscape began to change a lot of the aspect of that right right the playing field got bigger people got cheaper because they know they could do it cheaper so all of a sudden budgets changed yeah and then I realized okay there's probably 15 guys behind me that I that could take the same picture I know that let's be real be be realistic Mm -hmm. about that Mm -hmm. but I knew there were not 15 guys behind me that knew how to develop ideas right and I felt like my strength had always been my perception of ideas like I was able to see stories clearly yeah and that's when I really started pursuing the content end of things 
And I think writing a blog in the early days helped kind of fine tune that. But it ultimately, it was just storytelling. I mean, I was doing, I was interpreting stories before for mm -hmm. other people through assignments with camera. Right. And then I just decided to be the storyteller. And I think that's um, a big part of the Instagram dialogue is about storytelling. Sure. Um, even if that storytelling is about like the best pizza in Naples or, and I think that it becomes the extension of why I like doing the magazine. You know, I was asked recently, how is all this content sustainable? Like, how are you able? I said, that is the least of my problem. Like, <laughs> like I wake up with fantastical ideas and come up with ideas for stories just out of my own curiosity and interest, selfishly. You know, the biggest challenge with the magazine is, you know, is the distribution and getting that out there, like any product, sure. right? But the ideas are not a problem. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you, you definitely are prolific when it comes to content creation, that's for sure. Yeah, <laughs> I'm I, always in admir admiration of your you. energy and spirit, for sure. In those early photo days, did you have a mentor that sort of helped you develop your own vision or your way yeah. of telling a story? I think I, I started working with some really classic photographers mm. of the period. Uh, Eric Bowman um, was one, and then I was working with Horse P. Horst as an assistant who I met through Eric. And then, then I, you know, these were real old school guys. Oh, yeah. And then I met Dewey Nix, uh, who's a very, very dear friend. He was on the upward climb, you know, as one of the hottest young photographers and traveling around the world, working with all the best titles. Like for me, I always just wanted to be a magazine photographer. Like I didn't, <laughs> I understood the currency was better on the, on the kind of commercial ad side of things. Right. But like, I just loved the editorial dialogue with magazines. Sure. So I would say Dewey made a huge influence on me and was a, uh, so helpful and instrumental in kind of nurturing the beginning of my career. Yeah. Right to the point where my first assignment, first real assignment, was with Rolling Stone magazine. It wow. was a big story on the Surfrider Foundation when they first kind of came on the scene. Incredible for a first story. It was incredible. Yeah. And that was because of Dewey. Wow. I mean, they wanted Dewey to shoot the story. And he said, listen, I'm booked. I can't do it. But you should have Maddie do it. He could do it. He, he is as, as good as me. And they were like, okay. Wow. And that was my first big editorial. What a vote of confidence. Rolling Stone. Yeah, it was great. <laughs> Amazing. It was great. Do you feel like you had your own way of seeing back then too? Or were you still sort of finding that? I think I was developed. I knew, I knew how I wanted images to look in terms of aesthetics and light and color. Like that, I had a very specific point of view on. And then I don't thrive on tension. Like, some photographers like creating tension right. for that was not I just I would say philosophically it was more aligned with Dewey it's like how do you create this party how do you create this good time and then just document it you know and I think uh, when I first when I first started shooting like fashion I thought I wanted to be a fashion photographer that evolved into this thing called lifestyle that was happening at right. the time and then I always had a passion for architecture and travel so I kind of morphed into that as well. Yeah. I think my diversity was my downfall in a way because people love to pigeonhole you. Totally, right? especially in that world. Particularly in that world, yeah. and particularly then. I think in the long term, it saved me because I was so diversified in my interest and actually in my skill set of those interests, right? right? Yeah. I could shoot food, I could shoot architecture, I could do a portrait. It just made me like more one-stop shopping. Yeah. And at first, you know, I would struggle with that, but I think in the long run, it was the right course. Yeah. You know, I got to interview one of our mutual, well, one of your good friends and now an acquaintance of mine as well, uh, David Coggins. And he mentioned you as his favorite photographer to travel with. Yeah, I remember that. <laughs> uh, I think because I know how to throw a fly rod and, he, you know, and uh, <laughs> that was travel. First of all, David's a great subject, right? He's really good to photograph. Yeah. And he knows the camera and he's, he's good at it. I like taking pictures of David. And, you know, I think maybe part of it is like, again, like I want this process to be effortless. I don't, I don't want to create tension to have people start thinking about the images right. that um, I just kind of want to document the good time. And yeah. uh, David and I have had some really good times doing that. Yeah. 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 It looks like it. I've yeah. always enjoyed following your adventures for sure. Uh, I asked this question of him and I'll ask it of you. What do you think makes a successful travel story? Well, I don't necessarily think it has to be a new place. I just think, I think it has to be a fresher approach or different approach to place. Yeah. Like when I was working with young assistants who were assisting me and we were doing a lot of travel stories, like you could see them getting frustrated and want to get their own work 
going, right? right. And I was like, oh, it, they would say like, oh, it's so easy for you because, you know, we're in all these amazing locations like Bangkok and, you know, Paris and blah, blah, blah. And I was like, well, to be honest with you, I think if you really want to get good at this, the first thing you should do is go to your hometown and shoot a travel story. Like, you know what the recipe is for the travel story. Right. It's a little bit of food, a little architecture. You know, there's some people. Like, find that story home. If you could do that, then you could do anything. You could do it anywhere. Yeah. Paris and Bangkok are easy because it's all <laughs> fresh and new. I think what's interesting is when we look at the kind of expected or the or the thing we think we know right. and see it with fresher eyes. And, and I travel with fresh eyes constantly. I mean, we're... You know, I've been to Paris dozens and dozens of times and still looking at it differently every single time. I think that is a good start. Right. That's a great piece of advice. I love that idea. Yeah. I need to start adopting that myself. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think if you can build, come on, you can build a story out of almost anything. It's just figuring out what the hook is. Yeah. Figure out the hook and then tell the story to get there. And is that how you generally approach storytelling in general? Do you come up with yeah. your interest or what's what's your starting point? I think it first starts with like, what would be a cool idea to see, mm -hmm. right? Like what would be, what would I like to see? And let's take a section from the magazine like Midnight Snack, which is about what chefs eat when they come home boozy or jet lagged <laughs> or whatever, totally. right? You know, there was a book out not too long ago called um, chef's last meals or something like that it was terribly successful but I thought it was too much about fantasy yeah I really wanted the reality so in the middle of the night one time I woke up and I was like yeah midnight and I was jet lagged and I was like oh midnight snack like what does Eric repair what, what would he do right now or what would Jacques Pepin do right <laughs> yeah and I actually put a robe on went to my desk and I cranked out an email to both of them because I had worked with them and I had their personal email incredible so I send one to Jacques Pepin and I send one to Eric repair and I say hey what is your midnight snack? And if you have one, can I have the recipe? And, you know, I would really appreciate it because I'm building this magazine. Well, I woke up to Jacques Pepin email, which is pretty epic. <laughs> That's a good one to wake up to. And he said, Matt, I don't know, I don't know the recipe, but I like bourbon and dark chocolate. <laughs> and I was like, okay. So like, but that, that came out of like selfish interest, right? And, um, you know, I think when we, I always wanted to go to the Outer Hebrides and go see where Harris Tweed was made. Oh yeah, right. Right. So I just pitched that as a story. Like I was like, that's 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 a great story. Like we should do this kind of Tweed road trip kind of thing. I and remember that, that story. Yeah. That ended up being a big feature for Traveler, and I excerpted that for the first issue of the magazine because there was such cool stuff to see that we did we hadn't seen. So I think yeah, it starts from my own kind of self interest and then build it out from there. Yeah. I mean, you can definitely really feel your passions coming out mm -hmm. in all of these things. I think that's maybe why it feels so alive. Well, I think that all of everything that's in that magazine is something that I'm definitely emotionally connected to. Yeah. You're obviously very drawn to classic menswear, classic photography, classic things. Where does that sort of come from in you? Or where do you think that originates? I don't know. I think maybe, you know, people use this word like old soul, like, I think I'm, I don't know if I'm completely that, but I like things kind of rooted in tradition and I don't know, I think all, a lot of those kind of style reference points were kind of created from either my father or my grandfather and the kind of, the kind of philosophical stand on all that stuff right. about like, and I grew up in upstate New York and I was a total preppy and that has very trad roots, right? Yeah. And uh you know, I think now my wardrobe kind of has evolved in just kind of a better version of that preppy high school guy, like with like better clothes. Yeah. <laughs> but like, it, and I haven't deviated from the path, the path very much. Right. Like I always liked old European cars before I liked new modern cars. I don't know. I just, it's, it's, it's about nostalgia. Maybe mm -hmm. I'm a modernist. I think when it comes to architecture and some industrial design, mm -hmm. 
I think that's the great balance. Like I don't have to live in ye old house. Right. I do like modernism. And, but I think when it comes to, I don't know, personal style and, and as I get older, food even, I just like the most simple, straightforward version of it. Like that's not tricky. I don't like when things get tricky. Yeah. Right? Like I don't like when shirts start having extra buttons that you don't need. Like it's been a fine shirt with the standard <laughs> buttons for a long time. Right. Like I, I don't like the current trends on kind of streetwear becoming high fashion i just think it's you know maybe i sound like an old fart but you know track suits are for tracks and you know right. what i mean like, i'm the same way uh so anyway that that that's my perspective on it like i, I i'm nostalgic for the past do you feel like that's because of uh, emotional connection to people in your life or or I don't just know. what I've you're never drawn really, to really it's a very good question because i haven't really thought about I don't know, maybe about a big part of it is about how things were designed and built. It could be 20 years ago even. Yeah, absolutely. You know, you think about cars and how everything looks like a sneaker now, right? <laughs> sure. Like, it's, there's not a lot of exciting looking cars out there anymore. Yeah, they right? look the same. And the ones that are, are the most exciting when you see them are, are reinterpret, reinterpreted old designs, like when you have, like, the reinterpreted Mustang or the Challenger or stuff like that, right? Right. But I just am... I just like I like the design, particularly in cars, of of when people were not all being influenced by each other. Yeah. Right? When yeah. there was like some little Italian guy in, you know, near Modena designing a dashboard that was only influenced by the things around him, not like things a thousand, five thousand, ten thousand miles away, right. which we have access to now, right? Totally. So yeah, I guess I'm nostalgic for that. Yeah. I, I can completely relate. Just getting back to um, maybe the magazine and how you think about editing too, because I, I think you've mentioned that you kind of not put photography to the side, but realized you were maybe a better editor or curator of certain things. Than well, I mean, the thing with what I didn't want to do with photography was photograph other people's stuff, right? right. Like, and then what I found that I really enjoyed is particularly the last few years at Traveler is when Yolanda and I knew we had to come back with content. We had this very privileged opportunity to be traveling and have somebody else pay for it. Right. So we would stack the deck. We would say, okay, give us a pile of luggage and some clothes and some jewelry. And, and, and when we're on the fly, we'll build a story and photograph it. Yeah. And that's, that was a real fun way to work. Right. And it was very free and unrestricted. And because we were doing this so cheaply and smartly in terms of editorial for, let's say traveler, right no one wanted to put their imprint on it like that we could just do whatever we want and that was a fun way to photograph i think when i was photographing commercial jobs and making way way more money i was way more unhappy i just didn't want to walk into a room and have to be told what to photograph like to me that was against every idea that i had as far as being an image maker and creator right you know it wasn't even it, it wasn't even interpreting anymore it was like do this and i was like i can't do this anymore yeah <laughs> so i still I, I still pick up the camera i still love the interface mm -hmm. by taking pictures i love the iphone for that too the spontaneity and it is great. Of, of that thing is amazing and the quality through that spontaneity but i think the most fun is creating building the story and then potentially executing it but I think with the magazine now, I have the privilege of working with friends who are photographers who are a lot better than me and are really, really good. And it's great to have a platform for them to have their work seen right. um, in, in print, mm -hmm. which a lot of these guys have prolific digital careers, but there's not a lot of print anymore. So it's nice to give them the opportunity for that. Absolutely. Particularly when they give it to me for free. <laughs> <laughs> even better. <laughs> uh, when you were shooting, or even today, do you find, or did you find that you had a certain focal length that you gravitated towards, or a certain way of seeing? I guess I, when I started shooting with Leicas, like I bought an M2 really early on. It was an old timer buddy of mine's, and he was like, yeah, I don't want this camera anymore. Do you want to buy this camera? It was like brand new in the box <laughs> M2. Amazing. And I remember I only could afford the, uh, 50 millimeter 2.8 and I it was interesting because there was this deliberacy suddenly with using a Leica it slows you down it's the framing is more deliberate mm -hmm. I, I really liked that so I used that 50 all the time now I would say on that Leica I'd never take the 30 I very rarely take the 35 off the 35 millimeter interesting and even with the little CL that I use now 
um, little digital Leica CL, I think it's between 28 and 50. Oh, oh yeah. Right. I never really liked long lenses. I was more into the, the I would rather take a step closer and become more intimate with the subject right. rather than be far away. Yeah. I had a, a cinematographer, a friend of mine, frame the 35 as, as the storytelling lens, or as like the 50 was a little close for him. And he was like, yeah. I like a storytelling lens. Well, don't they say like the 35 millimeter lens is closest to actually how we see in terms of yeah, vision? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. You know, my daughter Clara is really getting into photography now, and I bought her a little Nikon with a 50. Oh, nice. Yeah, uh, film camera. Yeah. Of course, after I sold most of my film cameras, you were like, where's all the film cameras? <laughs> um, but I, I I started her out with 50. I think it's important to kind of learn on that 50. And yeah. then I just recently bought her a 35 millimeter for that. And she was like, wow, I'm seeing things differently. And I think it's that's a good lesson in terms of dialogue of like how you see things. Yeah, absolutely. You know? And it's how you see things through a camera. Yeah. No, I would totally agree with that. Yeah, I just got back into the film side of things. It's funny, I'm not nostalgic about film. Like, digital has provided, in terms of capture, such an amazing format. You don't have, I mean, we would travel with hundreds and hundreds of rolls of film. I bet. And I had to keep track of all that. And then you had to make sure that some security guy in the airport didn't zap it and ruin it all, or a roll wasn't lost, or... You know, or they didn't mess up at the lab. and But so I think this traveling, I'm not, I do miss certain elements of why how film looks straight out of the camera without having to worry about scanning something or putting something in Photoshop to get it to go there. Right. But I'm not, I'm not nostalgic for it yeah. at all. Probably. It's also difficult to process now. It's more of a pain in the it's ass. It's true. I mean, I would imagine for you as well, just brings back flashbacks of lugging huge packs no, no. of film. It gives like, me anxiety. <laughs> <laughs> Medium format backs and whatnot, just like. True, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I could totally see that. Yeah. Yeah, I, uh, I was a photo assistant right out of film school and worked for a few guys in Soho in New York. Like running, my job was basically loading and running film to the lab and running it back and that was. Hey, by the way, I loved those errands because it kind of like just brought me out to the street, right? Yeah. You know, I anytime I was worked with these big studios, we know, you know, they always needed one assistant to run and get something. I always volunteered. Like yeah. <laughs> I loved the idea of like getting out and being in that, particularly in New York, you get caught up in that kind of vortex of energy. And I also was working with a lot of still life photographers, so it was really boring after a while. So. <laughs> just loading eight by ten backs and just like, yeah, yeah. I used to do a lot of that. So you also did some TV in your career with Esquire, right? Yeah, that was. There's two things I call myself, like the accidental TV host and the accidental author, right? Because <laughs> right. both of those things were not something that I ever really pursued. Sure, I had fantasies as a kid, like doing a cooking show and would pretend to do that, right? <laughs> yeah. But when I started writing the blog, there, there, was a, it, there was a very obvious kind of easy translation in the content that we were talking about. And when I was approached by this production company to kind of do a sizzle reel, I always knew that that subject matter could translate easily to moving image storytelling, yeah. right? TV. And they said, no, 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 but uh, yeah, we want you to be in front of camera. I said, okay, let's give it a try. And it was a good fit. I had great people who kind of fast-tracked the learning curve. And uh, Esquire picked up the show and we did one season, six episodes, which was just unbelievable it was like a master's class on filmmaking right and television storytelling right? right because i was working with some of the best people in the business that way and i just like was a sponge you know when i would get when we would get done shooting i would get everybody in the room and i was like okay what did i do wrong and at first they looked at me like i was crazy like and of course the producer who was such a piece of work was just like oh my god you're fabulous then i was like listen i'm the oldest male in an italian family my ass has been kissed my entire life. Like, that does not help me learn. Right. Then all of a sudden, like, the sound guy's like, well, you kind of talk over people sometimes. Like, let people finish their thought because that's going to be a pain in the ass for the editing. And Or the camera guys would be like, you, you never open up to camera. We're running two cameras. You need to open up to both cameras. And then all of a sudden, you're like, okay, great. Now I, And then I got good because I listened. And then Esquire imploded because right. it was just the wrong model in the wrong time. Like n nobody was watching television shows. People were, are, are, were already converted to their laptops and their telephones. 
So that old model didn't really work and it kind of all fell apart. It was a, it was a really fun learning curve. Yeah. You know, did they let you contribute to the storytelling or were they following what you were coming up with? I actually, I actually produced everything for those shows. Wow. Incredible. Yeah. All the content was basically residual content of stuff that I had kind of collected quote on other assignments. Like I was going down to Nashville all the time for like country people magazine, right? <laughs> They'd give us three days to shoot a portrait. We'd shoot the portrait on the first day and then two days I would explore Nashville. So I had all this stuff in my head. So they would say like, what American city do you wanna do? I was like, oh, let's go to Nashville. Well, why Nashville? Oh, we got the Imogen and Willie down there doing custom denim and you have the oldest NASCAR track. And then I, they were just like, okay, that's a 30 minute episode. Yeah. So, and then Yolanda was really helpful my wife, she's a great editor, and you know we would kind of back channel produce that every day. Like I'd get on the phone with her, and was like, "This is what's going on. How do you think this should look?" And da 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 da. Right. And that was a lot of fun. Ah, it sounds incredible. Yeah. And uh, did you take any of those lessons learned from that forward with you, or is that so specific I to TV? I think all is. I think all these experiences are all doing one thing, right? They're all telling a story. Yeah. And I I love a great storyteller. You know, like I, there's a lot to be learned about delivery and punchline and all that stuff, right? <laughs> For sure. So in the oral, oral tradition, and I think that's true with, uh, with magazines and, and writing and talking about that, as well as television. It's like, what is the tension arc of the story and what is the kind of resolution or the punchline of the story? Right. And I think that happens through all those mediums, you know? Absolutely. Would you ever do TV again? I would do TV again in a heartbeat. I think... I learned a lot doing that. And again, like what happened with television, because I've been asked to come back and do a couple things and it's all just so dumbed down and stupid right. and inauthentic that I couldn't live with myself. Like I said that to Esquire when I first did the show, I was like, I am not an actor. Like if I don't like what we're doing, it's going to be very difficult for me to be convincing. <laughs> and that's why they were like, well, what do you want to do? And that's what we did. And it worked because I was generally interested. And I actually said to, the, to my producers, I was like, listen, I'm not the most interesting guy, but I am the most interested guy, right? Love that. And they were like, okay, we get it. And so I would say the, the shows that I've been offered since then, all based on this kind of travel magazine format, right? They were all so stupid. Mm. It was just dumb. Right. And I, I think it's insulting to audiences that people want smart programming even if it's mindless quote television right mm, absolutely and i just was like i can't do i can't do this and yolanda was really like no you cannot do this <laughs> you know so if we could ever get back into doing something that i think is clever it doesn't have to be intellectual it just has to be clever sure then yeah i would do that yeah 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 i think a, there's a deficit there is and it's an exciting time with shorter formats and all these kind of different avenues coming out where i think that kind of authenticity would would do extremely well i mean as is evidence from just even your instagram page sort of exploding with the magazine launch and everything yeah. over the last year yeah it's exciting to see thank you so you also have a book man and his watch um yeah. which is a more long-form thing does do you approach a long-form project differently than you would a short story well to be honest with you that whole like accidental author thing came from that book because yeah. i was in conversations with my publisher before this project about kind of a men's space themed book. Yeah. And I had a really hard time getting my head around the specifics of that because I just couldn't think about one subject. Right. I was thinking about too many. I was navigating the watch world as an editor for Traveler covering the watch markets. That was part of the hiatus from the TV show. They were like, we need you to be our watch editor. You're not doing anything. So and I was like, great. <laughs> so I was going to Geneva and Basel and meeting oh. all these incredible people and wow. also listening to their stories, right? And I came home and I was telling Yolanda all these stories. And she was like, I don't know if these were the exact words, but she was like, that's the book dummy. Like, that is what you should do. And I was like, you know, I think you're really right. Like, there's such epic stories out there, but how do we approach it differently? Which was not about big, glossy, celebratory photographs. It was more about intimate stories and emotional connections. Right. And also, so we shot a test uh, with Stephen Lewis, who photographed the book. He's a great still life photographer, a good friend. And the whole idea was to show all the patina, right? Mm -hmm. Like, show all the the dings and the dirt and the blood and guts of the thing that kind of 
make it what it is, yeah. right? A bit of history. So we photographed that test. I brought it into Artisan, and they said, no, we, we don't want to do a watch book. We already turned that down. And I said, no, this is not a watch book. This is a storybook. And they Love were like, that. ah, okay. And they let me do it. And the approach was still the same, right? Concise, straightforward, to the point, in, you know, imagery and words. Because I wanted it to be intimate and digestible. I didn't want it to be a burden. Because, you know, sometimes you feel like obligated to like pick up a book and you're like, oh, God, this <laughs> got to slog thing. through this thing. Yeah. So I would say the, the approach is consistent. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then um, you have a new book that you work. Can we talk about that? Is it? Yeah. Okay. A Man in His Car. Right. Which I've seen a little bit of behind the scenes when you post every now and again, which looks incredible. Yeah. Um, is your approach to that similar? It's the same. You know, both Man in His Watch and Man in His Car come from a very selfish place. Like I have intimate stories about those two things. And I just felt like watch guys were often car guys and car guys were often watch guys. And this, this, the stories, like the difference between like, car guys is like they've been thinking about this story for a long time <laughs> like yeah they're into it they're into it they like telling that story it was a little more difficult with watches to kind of like pull people out to get the story mm-hmm. kind of like nurture the story out because maybe they hadn't thought about it before yeah. or thought about it that way interesting but with the car guys man they come out of the gate with good <laughs> stuff so this will be probably a bulkier book just by the pure photographic approach of this mm-hmm. Um, there's maybe more details, but it is from the same philosophical place of like emotional connections through this and with this object. Right. And you're shooting this entirely yourself? Yeah, this, this one, one? I'm, I decided to shoot myself for a couple of reasons. One, I know I had a very specific way on how I wanted to shoot the cars being a non-traditional automobile photographer. Mm-hmm. And I didn't want to get somebody who was and I'd have to, re, you know, kind of rein them in. Yeah. Right. So, and I also knew there was a lot of traveling involved and it was gonna be a budgetary restriction. So I was like, listen, I'm gonna do this and I have a really cool idea on how I wanna do this. And they were like, great, you got it. So I've been traveling around the world shooting these cars now and it's been been incredible. (laughs) It looks like a dream job for sure. Yeah, and there's some, you know, and I. I'm going to miss a hundred stories. So anybody listening to this, I know I'm going to miss a hundred <laughs> stories, but you kind of just have to be realistic of like, what's the most capable edit you could do and how could you get to a place like, so, um, it was a lot different with the watch book. You know, somebody could drop a watch at a FedEx and we could have it in the studio and they could be in right. Hong Kong. You know, I had to be more stealthy about all that. Stuff. Right. Yeah. Very cool. I cannot wait to see it. I'm sure it's yeah. going to be fantastic. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, is, how was your approach to the photography? Well, what I loved about how Stephen approached the watch book was everything was kind of just shot on black velvet and the watches just really popped off. And I thought like, wow, also for consistency's sake, like let's try to do the car book the same way. Like we're so used to seeing these kind of slick studio on gray and white, and blah, yeah. blah, blah. And I knew a lot of these cars were gonna be have to be shot on location in daylight. And I was like, how the hell are we gonna do this? So uh, I did a test with this very heavy, almost felt like material called Dubatine. They use it in the movie industry and photo industry. Well, a 10 by 10 version of that weighs like 90 pounds, right? (laughs) So I knew I I needed a 30 by 30 black backdrop essentially to have cars on. So I was like, how am I gonna do this? And I got in touch with a friend of mine, Ken, who's at Root Studios in New York. And I was like, you gotta help me figure this out. What am I gonna do? So we, we pulled out the big Matthews catalog that does backdrops and light stands for the photo and movie industry. And they had all these swatches of stuff. And I was like, oh, there's this ripstop black that's so thin. So I called Matthews and they were like, yeah, we use actually the white side of that for big reflective surfaces in movies. But um, we can make that any size you want. <laughs> I said, can you make one thirty by 30? And they're like, yeah, I'll be ready next week. So I had a trip to LA and I drove up to Matthews and picked it up and I've been schlepping it all over the place, <laughs> like in a big giant Filson like hockey bag. Right. <laughs> That's you know? awesome. Yeah. I feel like, God, the life of photography, half of it is just humping heavy bags around the world. I have, I just have carried things professionally all my life. <laughs> yeah. Well, I have to say it does prep you if you ever have kids because that like <laughs> when you start schlepping around, you know, diaper bags and stuff for kids, like for me, it was like 
this is easy. <laughs> and, He's a light. <laughs> yeah, and I also learned how to really, you know, trim kit down, right? Yeah. And that comes from being a travel photographer too like you have to be careful and like how much stuff you bring right well that easily translated to a newborn i was like nope <laughs> don't need that don't need that don't need that just out of curiosity what you mentioned the Leica cl is that your current go-to travel kit you know i find with digital it's absolutely impossible to name one system yeah it's true you know when i was shooting film i would say okay for this assignment it's a pentex six by seven for this assignment, it's the Leica M's. This assignment, it's the Leica R's, right? The single right. lens yep. reflex. Oh, yeah. Right? And um, and I very rarely deviated from two film stocks, right? Mm -hmm. Now with digital, and I own digital Leicas, M10, CL. I've used the new Hasselblad for a good part of the book. Oh, cool. Right? Yeah. The X1. Mm -hmm. And Canons. And I also love Sony's. So it's like... Now I have to have this kind of, yeah. you know, yeah. cache of stuff to say like, okay, the Bonefish story that I shot actually on David Coggins in this issue, spring issue of William Brown, was all shot on a little Sony 6000 because oh. it has very, very good optics. It's great in low light and it fit in my fanny pack on the saltwater flats. And it right. and it wasn't it was not going to be very dramatic if let's say that camera took a swim or I lost <laughs> it or whatever. Sure. But the quality is so great. And then the cover of the first issue would not be as beautiful as it is if it wasn't shot with that M10 with the aspherical 1.4 lens. Like that picture came out of that camera exactly like that. Wow. So where I would think about what film stocks is appropriate now, I think about what camera system do I bring on assignment X. Yeah. You know. um, do you delve into much post on your own personal work? Uh, no, really? I'm really, I'm really bad at it. Yeah. Like I actually, I was on the phone with some guys from Apple Business, right, the other day, and they're like, "How important is Apple in the process of your business?" And I was like, "I could not navigate what I do without Apple products, right? From the iPhone to even their latest um, in iPhoto, like their latest edit retouching yeah, stuff great. is so great." <laughs> And it's so intuitive, and uh, Photoshop makes my head spin. Like, so I actually do so much in iPhoto in terms of just you know contrast and dust removal and right. stuff like that. But I don't really heavily heavily manipulate and never have any of the work that I do. I kind of like that approach personally. I think stuff yeah. starts to look crunchy and oversaturated. And just I don't know. Yeah. You can just tell. Yeah, I think it. You know, it was fun when it first came out, just like Instagram filters, like, and then all of a sudden you're like, this is stupid. Like, <laughs> let's just get back to what we know. Absolutely. I mean, I think there are people out there that do a very good job in post to make digital look very filmy, mm -hmm. right? And I like that, but um, I leave it to them. Yeah. Uh, who are some of the other storytellers right now that you gravitate towards? You look forward to their work. Does anyone jump to mind? You know, in, in terms of like, I, I love what happened with this idea of uh, street style in terms of photography, right? Yeah. And it went from simple documentation of, of thoughtfully styled people, like what Scott Schumann really pioneered. Totally. And then, you know, I think, you know, the next guard to kind of reinterpret that subject have been people like Robert Spangle here in LA, Jamie Ferguson, who lives in Ireland, but works a lot in the UK. Because they're really, it, it, their work does not look random. Their work yeah. looks like thought out and thoughtful. And I like their choice of lights, their light and their edit. And I'm really big fans. And both of them contribute to William Brown, thankfully, because they make it look that good. Yeah. Yeah, I love Robert's work. I, I got to meet him last night at your yeah. magazine event, which was great. He's great. And, you know, Jamie and Robert are stylistically very different, even though they're often in the same place with the same subjects. And I think that is that requires real craft mm -hmm. to have a point of view. That is what's fun to see, especially in a situation like that, where it's like you were given the person on the street. How are you going to see them? Yeah. And it's I mean, that's why when I, I always loved street photographers from Ouija to Cartier-Bresson, like I love the way people see the mundane or the or the potentially mundane and make it make it exciting yeah you know i think that is that's talent absolutely are there any photo books that you reference or go back to i love elliot Erwitt and i i actually when i think about the photo books that really made the most impression on me that you know i the great magnum photographers yeah right there's a beautiful magnum volume that was published not too long ago that i have that it's just incredible 
again, like I aspired to be that street shooter. So I kind of always kind of looked at that work. You know, Philip Halsman's jump book, Bruce Weber's A House Is Not A Home. Like just the way he looked at interiors, I thought was just so fresh and inspiring. Yeah, I have a huge, huge collection of photo books and sometimes I'll just randomly go through them and pull them out and forget how much I liked those images, yeah. even if it was someone like Larry Clark, you know? Oh yeah. I love his work too. So yeah, I, I thought it, I thought it was very important, you know, as somebody who studied art history, uh, while I was in photo school to, I think it's important to have those references of, uh, I don't care if it's the Dutch masters or, you know, Irving Penn, right. like, what are those visual references? How do we create this dialogue and this language so we can communicate with each other on, um, particularly if you're working in a visual medium, right? Like right. I could say to photographer X, like, well, I like the way Jurgen Teller approached this in a very kind of graphic raw way. Yeah. And they know immediately what that is or, you know, or how Avedon, Great American West series like that's my idea and they'll be like, okay I know exactly what you're talking about like that. I think it's important to have those that language. Yeah I just flipped it at Evan on book. It's so good Masterful. <laughs> yeah, right unbelievable. Yeah when you travel you obviously travel a lot Is your mind always on in terms of photography Are you always looking for moments or do you give yourself a break? You know I get I have this argument with Yolanda a lot because I think it's important not to always present the lens to the situation like after a while I'm just like enough already and then I get like this fear of missing out, right? <laughs> totally. And Yolanda would be like, well, I could shoot it with my iPhone. And I'm like, ah, oh, damn, why do you have to say that? Okay, I'll get the camera. You know, <laughs> and, and, and that could be a moment at the pool where you're just like, I'm sick of picking up the camera. But then I'm like, if I don't pick up the camera, she's right. The light is beautiful right now. And that is an amazing thing. And we should capture it. Okay, I'll do it. Yeah. But I struggle with that sometimes. Like I, I want to, I think it's important to step away a little bit. Yeah. I've and, been battled the same. I, I lived in New York for 14 years, and there's only one year that I like heavily photographed. And I was like, man, I wish I had pictures from those other 13 years. I, I am very much the same. Like when I was assisting, you know, I wished I documented more people in my life, actually. That's what I, yeah, I kind of think. You know, and uh, I probably had a box of Polaroids, and finally I was like, oh, I'm sick of schlepping these Polaroids and just threw them all away. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, that was probably not the smartest thing to do. <laughs> but I agree with you. I think that. You know, but now with, with our phones, for example, like I think there's we have we don't edit anymore. There's so much crap. Yeah. You know, but then again, if it's all stored in the cloud, it's not a box of Polaroids that you're schlepping around over and over right. and over again. Yeah. But I do I do struggle with that. I'm struggling with that right now because I'm you know I'm flip flopping on both of these stories about <laughs> you know. Yeah. Do you do it or do you do you pick up the camera and grab it or or just let the experience evolve? Uh, yeah, it's the the existential question of the photographer, mm. I think. Yeah, you actually travel a ton, as we were talking about, um, and Italy is obviously a huge yeah. favorite of yours. How did you end up? I mean, you come from an Italian family. My mother's Italian. My mother's family is Abruzzese, Pugliese. Oh wow! So I kind of grew up in a quote Italian house, very Italian American house, mm -hmm. with lots of weird Italian American slangs and stuff that actually don't make sense when you go to Italy. They look at you like <laughs> totally. you have three heads. Uh, but, you know, I, I went to school in Europe uh, when I was junior year in college and I had a girlfriend who went to sc school in Florence and I was in Salzburg. And I always, I always leaned and looked to the European experience like I just gravitated to. I liked European cars, I liked European style, I liked European food. And, you know, once you get to Italy, you're like, oh, this is what it's all about. Like, you know, when the wheels hit the tarmac, when I land in Italy, I just become the happiest version of myself. I just love it there. So I love the food and the people and the environment and the spirit. And we have a house in the Southwest of France, which is so beautiful, but like there's a heaviness in the culture of France. Like there's this grumpy heaviness <laughs> that you don't have in, in Italy. You just don't have it. Yeah, no, I just, I'm like you. It's my spiritual home, I suppose. How, you know, when you land in Milan at the, at the, I don't know if it's for international flights or if it's for domestic, one of the, maybe it's domestic. At the luggage carousel, there's an espresso stand. <laughs> right. Like there's a cafe, there's a bar. While you're waiting for your blo bloody bags to come off, you can sit and have the best coffee in the world or have a Negroni or, you know, while your bags are coming up, like that is a culture that understands how to live. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. I think it's amazing. Yeah. I mean, 
they they suffer their own faults, but it's done with such style and yeah. joy of life. Do you, is there a particular city within Italy you feel most at home at? You know, I've spent a lot of time in Milan, and I like Milan a lot. Mm-hmm. I like navigating it because I could pretend to be like a real Italian living there, right. where it's so embedded with tourism, let's say in Rome and Florence, which I've spent a lot of time in. It's a little bit harder to be anonymous because you just feel and look like a tourist, right? right? Yeah. But I... I really, I really love Milan. You know, people complain it's not as beautiful as Florence, blah, 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 blah. But I just like that it's this real working Italian city yeah. that I, I feel like I can be a part of. Totally. Just out of curiosity, uh, where did your appreciation and might I call it obsession with the Negroni start? Was that... You know, I think, I think Negroni's, I think it's a perfect drink. And I, but I do think it's a drink that appeals to adult palate. Like I think as we get older, I think there it's... It's a scientific fact that our palates change. Mm-hmm. And um, I discovered it, I don't know, probably through a friend that offered one when we were in Italy somewhere. Yeah. And I just remember saying like, God, this is so good. Like it's balanced. It's more bitter than really sweet. It has gin in it, which I love. Mm-hmm. And I just, I don't know. It just, I like a Negroni because it's also, it's an aperitivo and a digestivo. Right, you could start with it, totally. you could end with it. I never have hangovers from them. I mean, I suffer from champagne and red wine hangovers, and particularly bourbon hangovers. But I've never had that with Negronis. I just think it's this miracle drink that just makes you happy. Yeah, <laughs> it doesn't like make me depressed or get me angry or you know, <laughs> which so I think some spirits <laughs> do lead you down that path. Yeah. Right. Oh yeah, it's not an ugly drink, <laughs> you know. So true. I think everyone that drinks them enjoys them, uh, and they just are—they're just happier people. Yeah, it is. There's a line in uh, what is it in Groundhog Day where Bill Murray—he's drinking vermouth. He's like, "God, oh, reminds me of the way the sun hits Rome in the late afternoon." But yeah. that's kind of what the Negroni. Yeah, the is Negroni has that right because it also makes you nostalgic of the place, and that place—I think that's the thing—is right? also yeah. a beautiful memory, right? Yeah. You know, I've drunk Negronis in Italy in some of the most magical locations. And, uh, you know, we did this crazy car trip with, with this Fiat Panda. And when we were going from Lago di Garda to Lazio, we had all this mechanical problems. It was so stressful. And we, <laughs> I remember seeing that. It looked stressful. We limped into town. We had it fixed by this mechanic. <laughs> and, like, we, Yolanda was smart enough to always book, like, these beautiful hotels because like, she knew we were going to be suffering from A to Z, right? Right. And then we got up to that terrace and they brought me a Negroni. And like all the pain of the day was just erased immediately. Like that first sip just made me so happy, so happy, you know? And it didn't have to be necessarily in a beautiful hotel, but that helps. But there's just something about that where you're just like, ah, great. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) It's not a hard punch to the face either. No, 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 no. It's so lovely. What's next for the magazine and just continuing on? Yeah, so we are plugging away. The fall issue will be out at the end of October much anticipated fall issue again covering subjects based on season and fall is one of my favorites Mm -hmm. so there's some very inspiring stuff in there at least for me yeah i look forward to that yeah and then we move on to either quarterly or three times a year depending it's it seems like you want to kind of leave it on the in the marketplace enough so people will find it and discover it right and also we're a staff of two so it's a, <laughs> so, yeah, that's a lot of work. It is a lot of work, but yeah. we're going to continue plugging away at it. And I think we, you know, it's beginning to resonate and that's all you could hope for. Yeah. It's really, really exciting to see it kind of catching on like wildfire. And yeah, uh, thank you. the world that you and Elon have created is just, it's really inspiring and makes me want to create more. Actually. That's great. Yeah. So. I mean, I think ultimately I, I've said this, like I've made the magazine for you, I've, like for other people, like, yeah. you know, hopefully this is helpful. Like, you know, if I like it, maybe a hundred more people would like it. Yeah. So, but, so it all comes from a pretty honest place. So, yeah, I think that's what's so appealing and it definitely feels like it's just this again, lively thing that comes out of your passions and you can feel that. So. It, yeah, it is. And I'm glad you yeah. said that. Thank you. Yeah. Well, thanks for making the magazine. I look forward to future issues and I really appreciate you sitting down with me and taking the time to do this. So okay. thank you, Matt. Thanks, Doc. <laughs> Pleasure.